The truth is that uh, I'm so tied up and bogged down in the many logistics that go into an undertaking such as I'm doing that I have very little time to think about creative things. You know, I got all this stuff to do. I got to sell my one van. I got to get a new tire on uh, my other van. Just saw this morning that it had a flat tire. That was very disappointing. There's lots of things to do. Got to see if I can get somebody to sublet my room in my apartment. Boring things, you know, logistical things that I would uh, have my manager be taking care of if I were more successful and famous. You guys have done pretty well over the last couple of records. You're not at a point now where you can delegate some of that authority? Not exactly. And to tell the truth, I wouldn't. I like to have my my fingers in all of the pots, you know. I don't like turning my back on too many elements of my business. Even if I could have somebody do it, I would probably be more comfortable doing it myself. Even though that means that uh takes up a lot of what would otherwise be my free time. But like you say, we have done very well and I'm very blessed, so I shouldn't complain. Not even about the flat tire. Not even about taping this podcast on Valentine's Day night. You listeners at home, you probably, you might not realize, but we're taping this on Valentine's Day. I did not float the my, day. This was, the state was given yes, to me. Yes, yes. My, uh, my trusty publicist, Mike Cowlow, set this up knowing full well that I wouldn't have a date tonight. Thanks, Mike. I try not to put too much stock into holidays in general, but it's one of those things that you kind of want to keep busy during anyway. So you don't yes, have to think about it. Especially if you're alone. Although, you know, the, uh, the walk over here. The uh, the air in the subway was rich with perfume. See all kinds of excited, smiling people on the street holding flowers, balloons, oversized teddy bears. Who cares, right? It's not even a real holiday. It was made up by the the flower company and the over the powerful oversized bear lobby. Just just more dirty capitalism is all that it is. And you know what, folks at home, if you have love in your life, you don't need a, the go ahead from the the machine. To celebrate that, you should be celebrating it every day. You need to take stock of things. You need, you need to sort of celebrate it from moment to moment and acknowledge the fact that you're in a relationship because that becomes problematic if everything just kind of defaults to a mean and you just become roommates. I mean, that's... Yes. I don't think I've ever had a relationship that really was super explosive. I'm not the kind of person who gets a lot, into a lot of fights with people, but I go to the complete opposite end of the spectrum, which is just like, oh yeah, everything's fine, but... Now we're just kind of living together, and yeah, yeah, yeah. got to keep the keep the fire burning, keep the romance alive. But this is so true of all of our blessings in life, right? You mustn't take them for granted. You got to count your blessings every day. Feeling very blessed that I've gotten this invitation to be on this podcast. Thank you for taking an interest in the campaign that we're doing. Nice to be validated this way, and I'm uh, very happy to be here in a position to. Share my message with your audience. I do get the impression, though, you know, having read some recent interviews that you've done around the last record or two, that you're trying to take more stock in the successes that you've had as a band. Yeah. Well, you know what it is. You got to be grateful for the things that you have and spend, devote a little less energy to the things that you don't have, which you might want. You know what I'm saying? My father calls this uh, measuring success by acquisition, and it'll never be enough. So I'm at a point in my career right now where I want to say to myself, hey, you might never be as famous or successful in a certain way as uh, some of these other artists that you might see around, but I do have a very nice relationship with my audience, it being the size that it is, and I should really be putting my energy 
towards nurturing that and serving those people rather than uh, trying to necessarily attract new people. Not that I don't want new people to come in. Obviously, you know, if the kids kids across America and around the world that need to uh, hear you, my message. doing it without pandering. Right. Not trying to get into the pandering business or trying to uh, chase popular tastes. Nor do I even want to pander to the expectations of even my most loyal audience members. Besides their expectation that I'm going to keep it real always. Keep it a buck for the kids, you know what I'm saying? That's the business I'm in. Expanding the audience sounds nice, you know what I'm saying? But I've known uh, uh, there's certain compromises I wouldn't want to make in order to achieve that. And furthermore, even if you made those compromises, there's no guarantee that you're going to achieve it anyway. So you might be doing nothing more than throwing away what meager integrity you have. Do you have a tendency to, though, to, to get jealous when you see other people who you feel like maybe aren't performing at the level that you're performing at getting Heaven that Heaven knows there's plenty of people like that. I try not to begrudge anybody their blessings in life. I just hope that they're mindful and appreciative. There have maybe been times in the past where I could uh, point to some big-time artist, even within the little world, in which I work and say, Ooh, wouldn't it be cool if that was me? Let's make a series of choices to achieve that. But I'm getting getting less and less interested in that. And that's more and more of a remote possibility anyway, so to get more interested in it would be would be against my own interests, interests of my general well-being. I mean, at a certain level, all any of us are really looking for is a level of comfort that allows us to yeah, maintain what we're able exactly. to do. I have got a very blessed and nice life in Ridgewood, Queens, and... And that's exactly what it is. I'm more interested in holding on to the stuff that I have and nurturing the good things in my life and being mindful and appreciative of them on a daily basis than I am about chasing other things or thinking, what fancier part of town can I move to? How can I get a bigger apartment or a nicer van or stuff like that? I got a perfectly nice van. Although you're even if they've been right in, now, right? Well, I'm, uh, I have two vans. Wow, one, so you're one, really yeah, yeah. you're living so high on the hog, doing, Mr. I'm two doing, vans I'm doing over better here. Than, yeah. better than a lot of people, but one of the a lot vans, of people with one vans or zero. But if you, and if any young musicians are listening out there, I strongly recommend and advise you to invest in at least one van because if you go out and try and rent a van, you really you're throwing your money down the toilet. How did you end up with two vans? Well, one of the vans that I have is very old. I see. It's on its last legs. So you upgrade, poor girl. Well, I, I I downgraded in a way because I got a smaller van. I got a conversion van now. You've seen these things, Chevy Astros. You know, they got the bed in the back. The, mm -hmm. the back bench folds down into a bed. They got a little TV in there. So I bought that thinking I'm always going to need a van. And with a van like this, if things really start to go south, I can move into the van if I have to. there, Or if I get to the point where I can't afford a hotel on the road. Let's sleep in the back of the van. Is that a legitimate concern? Is that actually something that you think about? Sure. I mean, I probably won't have to move into the van too soon. But if you look at, I'm at a certain age. This podcast is getting pretty gloomy, huh? I'm at a certain age now where, you know, when I look at a lot of my role models, mm -hmm. people who are in the same field that I am, rock and rollers, you know, and particularly hard on the sleeve uh, singer-songwriter types... There are certain ones of them who enter into their fully mature phase past the point where they're like a buzz band or something and they enter just a 
nice mature phase and they kind of, you know, level up to be like a real career artist. Somebody like Mountain Goats or something, right? And uh, we'd all love to be the Mountain Goats. It seems like John took a real long time to get there. I mean, he was doing very or very organic growth. I mean, yeah, I guess the Mountain Goats were maybe not ever what we would think of as a buzz band. But this is just another reason why the Mountain Goats' career was so exemplary and such a uh, golden ideal for a guy like me to strive for. And he even gets to write novels now. Like, that's the transition that every rocker dreams of. But for every person like the Mountain Goats, there's ten more that you can find out about who either completely fade into obscurity and totally out of the public consciousness, or they stick around and uh, end up doing podcasts like this where they explain, man, it's tough out here. I got to sleep in the back of my van in a Walmart parking lot just to stay on the road and come home with 200 bucks. But that's okay. That's fine. That could be me, and I'm prepared for that. I've seen you say this multiple times after just about every album that came out that there's a certain very real possibility that this is going to be the last album. Absolutely, and that, that's, that's every bit is true on this one. And that's because even though I am feeling pretty dedicated in my heart to keep going, even when it seems scary, even when the, the possibility of uh, success seems more and more remote, I have decided in my heart that this is the thing that I'm going to do, and I'm going to honor the part of me that remembers that, However, further and further into the dusty corners of my waking mind, that version of myself gets pushed. I'm dedicated to it. But my dedication is only going to take me so far. You know what I'm saying? The other half of that and the bigger and much more powerful half is the dedication of my audience. And what I've often said in the past is that the artist is kind of like an elected official and the artist's audience is like their constituency. And they vote for me to hold this office of the artist with their dollar, either by purchasing the record, purchasing concert ticket, how else do they give me money? T-shirt, something like that. That's their way of saying, we like what you're doing. We think that your life is best spent in the arts. And so we're going to vote for you to stay in that position. And it's only... But for the grace of these people that I've been able to do the things that I've been able to do right up to and including this new album that we got coming out, that's a productive cough available March 2nd from the good people at Merge Records, this tour that we're about to do, all these things. But the day that people stop buying the concert ticket and they stop buying the record and they stop buying the t-shirt is the day that I am going to have to face the grim reality of being ejected from my office. You say it as though it's inevitable. It's not necessarily inevitable. It could could be avoided, but it's not completely in my hand. When you talk about success as this elusive thing that you haven't yet achieved, what does that look like to you? I mean, obviously, you've achieved some level of success with every album to be where you are. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe I misspeak because really my definition of success is two things, I suppose. One of them is that I am continuing to live the life of the artist. You know, and when I sat down on this road some 13 years ago, starting this Titus Andronicus thing, there was no guarantee or even hardly the inkling of an idea that I could spend one day living the life of the artist. 
And now my art would be something I would do on the side whilst I wasn't too busy doing whatever it was that I was going to be doing to feed myself. Did you go down that road? Were you doing those jobs? Was there a career path aside from being a musician? Well... Because you started this at a pretty young age. Yeah, I was about uh, 19 years old. Think about that. Yes, well, at that time, I had different career aspirations. Not that not that there wasn't a, a vocal part of my heart that really wanted to be an artist and thought that the arts were really the thing that were making me happy and bringing the most fulfillment into my everyday life, but I didn't think that that was going to be my job. And back in school days, I was training to be an educator, and I was going to go and work in the school like my parents had done before me. And I was all set and everything to go to graduate school after I got out of college to further pursue that and get my certifications and all these things and get right out there and get in the classroom with the kids. It's always been about talking to the kids, you know, in one way or another. But as fate would have it, just around the same time that those graduate school applications were going out, the first Titus Andronicus record came out and everybody said, holy cow, is this not just the greatest thing you ever heard? And everybody was banging down our door saying, you got to come to St. Louis, you got to come to Kansas City, you got to you gotta do all this stuff, you got to get out here and rock, rock these kids. Do you defer the career path at that point or is it just clear that I'm going to be doing music for an extended period of time? I did take a deferment for one year mm-hmm. at a particular graduate school to which I had been accepted, but I did not follow up on that deferment. Because you're right, when we set out on that road, even then I knew how fickle the music world is and I said, well, this will be, this will take a miracle to fill up a whole year, but we'll try it. And then we'll never be able to say that we didn't try. You had an opportunity to do this at an early age, but I think most people get to a point, especially when they're in New York City, which is a place where you don't get any sort of semblance of, of a safety net at all. But for most people, it's kind of do or die if they're going to pursue right, it. That's why it's... they come here. People come here because they want to show that they're the best in the world. They want to compete on the big stage. It's quite a different thing to say I'm the best chef in Des Moines. Nothing against Des Moines. Or any other city in the world, but uh, you come to New York City oftentimes with a big chip on your shoulder. I'm one of the best chefs in the world. The cost of living, though, ensures that you have a really small window to have an opportunity to be able to do that. Yes. You can't, you can't be a struggling musician for, you know, no. necessarily 10 years in this city. So in, in that in that regard, I consider myself to be a big success because I have survived in this, uh, this tough town. And I have a, quite a nice life in a lot of ways. Doesn't mean that I'm free from uh, what the pundits call economic anxiety. Sure. Not that my economic anxiety would ever drive me to support our president. We don't need to talk about him, right? Probably plenty of podcasts that that mention him. We can leave that alone for the time being. But yeah, just like you said, I am a a big success, and you know it doesn't. Uh, success doesn't mean retire on a pile of money. You know what I'm saying? Success is the privilege of getting to to do it. And also the other even more important definition of success is that I know that I have validated the feelings of certain members of my audience and given them validation that I, like them, was often denied previously. So that is worth a lot more than a Grammy. In my book. When you talk about living the life of the artist, I mean, there's a certain amount of romanticization of struggle built into that, especially in terms of sort of those early years. But it, it, that gets harder and harder as you get older. Absolutely. I'm not I'm not in any big rush to uh, 
go sleep on some piss-stained mattress in some Jacksonville, Florida punk house tonight. That first year, that must have been kind of that a romantic was, thing, a, that right? That was a great thrill. Yeah. Like, wow, I can't believe I'm sleeping on a real piss-stained mattress. Really and it's not my piss-stained mattress. Yeah, well, I stopped wet in the bed like almost 20 years ago. No, no, uh, no disrespect either to Jacksonville. Or people who wet the bed. No, of course not. Especially as a punk band, I assume all of the bands that you were idolizing growing up, there was the sense of DIY, the sense of these small shows, you know, like there's that whole Henry Rollins book about getting in the van. Getting in the van, of course, a great book. Although I also like his book, Art to Choke Hearts. People at home, check that one out. That's actually in a compilation with his other book, uh, Pissing in the Gene Pool. But yeah, it's absolutely true. And I did admire all of those sorts of artists. And particularly, I sh- we should give credit to the great book by Michael Azarad, mm. Our Band Could Be Your Life. Uh, for instilling a lot of those values in me at an early age and saying this is what it's about. This is the real deal. This is about forging a more tangible kind of tactile connection with your audience. And I, in my opinion, uh, validating them in a much realer way and giving them a, a more of an opportunity to identify with you as just a regular person as opposed to like a Led Zeppelin or something who, you know, after the gig, they jump on the private plane back to Mount Olympus. You know, that doesn't interest me very much. I think it's, you know, in a lot of ways more potent when you as an audience member can understand that you share the same concerns as the artist and that you and the artist are occupying a a common reality. You more so than most of us have a portrait of yourself at all these different points in your life starting when you were 19. When you go back and listen to something that you have on record that you've produced and put out into the world at 19, is it difficult to listen to yourself at the time? I don't uh, I don't make a habit of doing that. Yeah. The record is not for me. You know what I'm saying? It's a it's a an externalizing of the way that I feel at a certain point in time, but once it goes out into the world, it's the property of the public. Not literally. I maintain the publishing rights. Wish that I could get the rights back to my master recordings for some of those old yeah. albums, but that's okay. Once you've gone through the process of pushing out into the world, do you kind of want to wash your hands of it? Well, no. I still take responsibility for it, and I have a certain amount of pride in it, but it's not up to me how a member of the audience is going to receive it or appreciate it or what they're going to do with it. I have certain ideas about what I'd like them to take away from it, but I can't force them to as much as I've tried in the past. Furthermore, go back and listen to those old records and it, it's some, it can be like, oh my God, what was I thinking? I would make so many of these choices differently. Especially when a record is as fresh in my mind as the one that we just made. Like, I can't listen to that one. Not because I don't think it's great and everything, but I'm like, oh my God, why did we do that? I'm just kidding, folks. The new record that we made is perfect and uh, I wouldn't wouldn't change a thing about it if I could. You do need a certain distance yeah. from the moment yeah. of creation. So you can just uh, appreciate it for what it is and not uh, think, you know what I'm saying? It just goes back to what we're saying about uh, this is the big theme of the night is is just gratitude. You also have to be able to push it out into the world. If you become too much of a micromanager, if you try to fix every single thing about it, the thing is never going to happen. Yes, that's true. A big part of the job is finishing. 
But there's that famous story about Bruce Springsteen where uh, he uh, they just get the acetate, like the test pressing of Born to Run, and he hates it, and he throws it throws the disc into the pool of the of the cheap motel where they're staying and then uh his manager john landau says like you gotta look you know you're never gonna put every idea in your head onto one record you know the next idea that you have you gotta save it for the next record and there will be another record and furthermore it's not for you and landau says do you think that chuck berry sits around all day listening to maybelline just put out the damn thing so I would say that that's true. It sounds like you're able to sort of take a large part of your time when you're not necessarily thinking about making music or writing songs because you have all these other things on your plate. Once the album is Right, done, my administrative duties. Yeah, but once the album is in the can, you're not immediately thinking about the next one, or are you? Well, it's a funny thing because uh, there's a uh, quite a good length of time between when the album is in the can. I just did the finger quotes, people at home. Time between when the album is in the can and when it is uh, released for public consumption. So it would be a good idea to take some of that time when you're sitting around and try and come up with a couple of new songs. But I can't say that I'm always so diligent about that. By the end of making an album, it's like, music? Yuck. You need some peace and quiet for a while. I got my fingers. My fingers hurt from pressing strings too much. Oh, my stupid voice. Get out of here. Just kidding again, folks. My singing on the new record is, is my best yet. That's a, that's a productive cough, by the way, March 2nd on Merge Records. Don't forget to visit a, a productivecough.com to uh, learn more. Do you genuinely feel like this is your best singing? I mean, that's not a high bar to clear. <laughs> a lot of my old records that say it is just awful. That I don't mind saying because I'm not trying to sell those ones anymore. But yeah, like the first three was really, really some... Really some rotten singing on there. But again, maybe that helped me to foster the intimate connection that I have with my audience because they can't sing very good for the most part. So it makes me even more identifiable. Does that come from just the experience of going out and singing so much? Or are you going out of your way to try to build yourself as a singer? I guess it would be more of a more of an experience thing. I went to singing school like uh, for maybe about three visits. I didn't really learn all that much, but I did learn how to do uh, warm-ups and stuff, which has helped. But yeah, just uh, just time and just getting to know my own uh, my own uh, limitations and being comfortable within them and uh, you know, just repetition. Repetition is the father of learning, as Little Wayne says. I don't know if Little Wayne coined that phrase, folks, but he uh, he spoke about it in the documentary film The Carter, which was never officially released because Little Wayne and his uh, handlers didn't like how they addressed the topic of his codeine dependency during the filming of the documentary. But uh, it's really a great film, and you can find it online. So, listeners at home, when you're done with this listening to this podcast and then when you're done pre-ordering the new album of productive cough i would recommend go out and check out that little wayne the carter documentary i was reading somewhere where you were framing particularly on hip-hop songs lyrics about drug taking as sort of a, a form of people talking about i don't know if mental illness is the right way to describe it but it, it does offer a certain amount of of insight but it's celebrated in a way that you know mental illness isn't necessarily yeah. or depression isn't necessarily celebrated on record that's true although little little wayne does have a certain certain songs where he lets us see the whole the whole rainbow of his feelings about drugs me and my drink in particular and outtake from the carter three album is really a Somebody please, please double cut me, and everybody please, please don't judge me. Beautiful. Some Kind of Monster, that's an interesting example, because 
it's kind of viewed pulling their teeth. Giving this naked insight into the band outside of the music is something that's not generally done. Yes, that's a, that's a big time genre transcending film and not necessarily an effective commercial for the album that they would ostensibly be promoting with such a film. But that's what makes it that's what makes it so great. My lifestyle determines my death style. Fantastic. It's a vulnerability that you don't generally have to offer. And even when you're writing about yourself, you're able to mask it through metaphor. Right. And you can present only the parts of yourself that you want to yeah. present, not unlike on uh, how people present themselves on social media nowadays. Not always uh, certain lies of omission happening in the way that we present ourselves to the world at large. I mean, you could probably point to a song and point out all the vulnerabilities. It all seems obvious to you, but not necessarily to a listener. I mean, you're putting yourself out there, but it's not that easy to draw those lines directly back to you. Mm, I think a lot of the times that it is. I don't use metaphors that much. Maybe a couple similes here and sure. there. But no, I mean, I try to I try to keep it pretty real. And I think at this point, the people that are familiar with the music know who I'm talking about. You know, I'm uh, pretty upfront about uh, the things that I go through. It's all part of my plan to validate my audience, you know? And those people out there that go through similar things, they need representation on stage just like everybody else. And that's what I am trying to offer. Do you feel that you've become more honest over the years about it? I mean, has it become easier for you to, to channel I th that? I think I came out of the gate keeping it 100. <sighs> it's always been my mission. Uh, and I guess... As far as it getting easier, once again, you know, the more that you do something, the more familiar you are with the process of doing it, the easier it is. So, yeah. How do you deal with something that personal and avoid cliche? It's hard to put yourself out there completely and not Why? fall into some of those trappings. Why avoid cliche? There's a reason that cliches become cliches. They're classics. They're truisms. You don't want to repeat the same tropes that everybody else has over and over again. I suppose not. I'm much too clever to fall into that trap. I would never do that. But keeping it real comes first. And then uh, from there, if you can if you can fancy it up and be a clever guy in the way that you do it, then that's great. But that's just another means to an end. The cleverness is not an end unto itself. That's just uh, one way to achieve the real goal. Communication, validation. Even people who love their jobs and love going to their job, you're going to have bad days. You're going to have days where you don't necessarily want to be there. Absolutely. Yeah, but you gotta, you have to make certain choices that are going to help you to get out of your own way with that stuff. And again, like I said, you know, communication is my goal. Yep. And, uh, you know, if I can achieve that with a loud rock band, that's fine. And uh, we're going to see if I can achieve it with just uh, me and the pianist. There's a degree of making yourself uncomfortable. Sure. Absolutely. Which is, you know, another part of the reason why I've uh, made such a point of keeping it so real in my lyrics and in my interviews and all over the place. Because in yourself uncomfortable and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone is how you grow. It's like Tom Green said when he went to do his, uh, his testicular cancer yep. special, remember? He said, you know, uh, this is the, this is the scariest thing I've ever dealt with in my life and I'm really scared to talk about it and to confront it. So the only natural thing for me to do is confront it in the most public way possible and do a TV show. So same thing for me and my various woes. Does having a, a rotating cast of band members though, does that, does that give you the opportunity to, I mean, by nature, you're going to have to mix it up a little bit. It's going to be yes. a little bit uncomfortable. It's going to be tough those first several times playing together to figure out how everybody gels. Yes, that's true. That's a, that's a very astute observation, but it's, it's absolutely the case. 
If you think about a band like, I don't know, U2 or something, you, you have to wonder what it must be like for them to get up there and, and do, uh, or the streets have no name or something, and they're doing the exact same thing they were doing 30 years ago with the same guys. Except they're not doing the exact same thing because we know that they have to drop every song another uh, key or two to keep up with uh, Bono's uh, deteriorating vocal range. But you're right, and keeping it fresh is cool. And you gotta, like, play the song, not play the parts. You know what I'm saying? You need to keep in touch to a certain degree with the emotional idea, which is at the, the center of why you made the piece of art in the first place. Rather than saying, I know that my, uh, I have to put my fingers here or there. And this is another reason why I have to change the way that I tune the guitar with every album that we make. You know, I've never made, uh, two albums in a row that had the same guitar tuning because I need to continue to challenge myself and keep my mind sharp so that I don't just go back to my same old bag of tricks. Not that I ever had that many tricks on the guitar, but uh, it's the same idea. How tied to this tour is the new record insofar as instrumentation? I mean, was, was this album made with that in mind? Well, I mean, the tour that we're doing is just me and the piano player. Yeah. And there's a lot more, a lot more instruments on the album than uh than a guitar and a piano but the material on the album regardless of the instrumentation is certainly more geared to be appropriate in more acoustic arrangement not that to be clear to your audience the tour is not actually acoustic i'm gonna play an electric guitar you would would never play an acoustic guitar what could be more whack than that? But like, if I if I had uh like the last album that we did had a bunch of punk bangers on it, it would have been really inappropriate for me to follow up the release of that album with an acoustic tour. That would be uh, that would have been very silly. So but this album is more of a ballad kind of a thing going on. So it will be less of a shock to the system is that because you had this idea that you were going to go out and play a stripped down version i mean are, are those two things directly connected to one another it is i've had a i've had a dream of doing a show like that we're going to be doing for a long time yeah. but then again i've sort of had a dream of doing an album like we're now doing for a long time but i'm only now at a point in my career where i can explore that as fully as we're about to do you described yourself earlier in a sense being almost an elected representative that's right. For better or for worse, when people are elected to office, they feel kind of beholden to their constituents, right? Which oh, is yeah, that is true. Sometimes a good thing, sometimes a, a very, very bad thing. I mean, that's well, that's what, that what is that is populist in government. That yeah. is that is supposed to be their job. If only that were true in real life. It's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, there, there's this idea of representing your constituents, which is really good, but then this is also kind of what drives people to do populist things. I know we said we weren't going to talk about him, but basically do a lot of grandstanding and to do things because it seems like something. That, that they would be interested in. When you feel this sense of, I don't know if responsibility is the right word, but this you know connection to people who are the ones who are going out of their way to support you, to some degree, is it important to sort of deliver them something that you know that they're going to like? I mean, if that is important, then they're, they're in for a, a major betrayal right about now. But I didn't necessarily, to my mind, I wasn't running on the platform of delivering the fiercest punk bangers year after year. I ran on the platform of saying, I'm going to keep it real and I'm going to do what I want because that's what punk is really about. And I'm going to answer to my interior authority on matters both ideological and artistic. 
that's what I'm selling to the people. That to me is the cornerstone of my covenant with them. If at some point uh, they seem they come to feel that I am no longer representing their needs, then that's when yeah. they're gonna they're gonna start to cast their vote in another direction. As I'm getting older, I'm like looking around at certain things in my life and you know realizing like, oh, these are things I never really expected to get there. And in some ways, I feel like. If I had seen myself in 15 years, maybe I wouldn't necessarily be super happy with the decisions that I'm making. And mm. there is that career trajectory of being a young punk and then, you know, slowing it down a little bit, you know, and, and, and writing these, these, these. Musically speaking, you mean, yeah, we've seen a lot of, we've seen a lot of punks do that to varying degrees of success. Are you concerned that you're maybe like falling into that trap? Concerned or not, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Can I concern myself with these things? Nobody's ever done it like me. Oh, so. Listen, is, what do you mean? It's it's obvious. Just listen to it. Just look at me. I'm nothing like those other losers that slipped up and fell out of relevancy. I'm more, I'm growing more relevant by the minute. But yeah, what you say is true. There is a little bit of a cliche of uh, punk. Well, a punk. We should make the distinction right now between punk and punk rock, which are two very discreet, distinct things. Punk rock. Being the style of music as exemplified by the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and Black Flag and people like this. And punk, the ideology, which is nothing more, to my mind, to my understanding about the, like I said, the elevation of interior authority and the degradation of exterior authority. And that doesn't have anything to do with the kind of music that you make. And if you think you're a real punk, then you wouldn't continue to play what we recognize as punk rock music beyond the point of its utility to communicate what's in your soul. So in a way, I'm only growing punker by refusing to uh, be beholden to a rigid a series of aesthetics as dictated by Black Flag. I wonder if the fact, again, that, that there hasn't been a consistent group of people around you making music has, has given you a freedom that you wouldn't otherwise have that you know you're able to really kind of call the shots i mean this is a conversation that i have having with, with a lot of musicians and a lot of them sort of grit their teeth as they say it but you know they essentially tell me that the only way to really they found to run a successful band is to kind of run it as a dictatorship to really have one person even if it's a consistent group of people over time to have one person really calling all the shots and have a singular vision i need not grit my teeth and i'm not ashamed to say that i've always called all the shots yeah. and indeed it has allowed me to keep a more a steadier grasp on the aesthetic mission of this project. That's just the way that it's got to be. I'm not ashamed. Titus Andronicus never was any kind of democracy. You know what I'm saying? You know what they say about that, that old joke about a, a camel is a horse built by a committee? Well, I'd say that's uh, that's mostly true in art as well. Do you think that you're a difficult person to be in a band with? Yeah, probably. I wouldn't want I wouldn't. I wouldn't sit around and take orders from me. If I was another person, after I'm uh, done with this music, I'm not going to certainly go look around for some dude like me to take orders from. Not that I've gone out of my way to be a jerk or anything. I'm not, like, uh, not quite on the level of uh, Marky Smith, I don't believe. God rest his soul. Is that something that's distinct specifically to your music, or do you feel like that's kind of the way you are in life in general? Difficult question on a lonely Valentine's Day like this. <laughs> We're all looking around at our lives and, and wondering how we got here. We certainly are. In a scary world like this, we all do what we got to do to cast the illusion of control, right? I just find, and this is probably the same being in a band, probably even more so, because, I mean, you are literally more confined 
when you're in a smaller space like a, a van. But I, I've always said the quickest way to really test a relationship is to move in with somebody. Very dangerous, treacherous waters, those. You learn a lot about yourself that you didn't know <laughs> until and, uh, you're forced and, to live and, with someone. And about your partner also. What is the question? Just whether that sort of that sense of control that you have over your art is something that leads into other aspects of your life. I would, uh, yes, I guess I would have to say that that is probably true. My uh, desire for control in my art didn't just come out of nowhere. I've always wanted to have control, but everybody does because we don't have it, and that's scary. Do you feel like you've uh, you, you've mellowed out, though, as you've gotten older, that you've become an easier person to get along with? Mm, that really isn't for me to say. Well, you know, last night I was getting really pissed off because I needed to upload a big file to the internet, and my internet at my apartment, I've learned, is very slow, and I was very possibly not going to be able to upload the file. And in this caused me no small amount of frustration, and I started saying to myself, I should write like a pissed-off email to the person who requested this file and tell them, this is going to take forever. I don't have time for this. I got a podcast to tape tomorrow. I mean, this yeah. was a big file. The way that things were going, it seemed like it was going to take 30 hours. Yeah. And what's the point of this file anyway? Like, this file's not going to do us any good. We should can the file, and we should can the whole thing. But uh, I didn't. I didn't write such an email. And I take that as a major victory in my personal growth. I left it uh, to go overnight, and in the morning, it was all uploaded. This is one of the few things that I really do appreciate about getting older, though, is that you, you take a lot of bullshit in your life a lot less seriously. Well, when you when you encounter bullshit and uh, somebody that frustrates you or makes you upset and cranky, for me anyway, the way that I feel in these moments is much less about the actual issue at hand and much more about yeah. the fact that this little issue that maybe doesn't mean all that much has uh, uncorked the bottle of uh, of anger and frustration that is within me always you know what i'm saying same thing with uh, any kind of any kind of feeling sorrow happiness you know we have these uh, there are things in life that will trigger these emotions but uh you know they exist within us all the time once you get them going, it's like not even about the feeling is no longer about the uh, the incident. It starts to dawn on you life that like the interactions that you have with other people, they're having a bad day for some kind of external reason. You try to take things less seriously for that reason because, you know, everybody is constantly going through shit at all times. Yes, yes. And our emotions are often very distinct things from our cognitions. Yeah. Uh, it's just another one of those things you need to be working on all the time and you need to just be aware of it and uh, hopefully hopefully grow is part of this mindfulness thing that you're working on i mean is it just give you do you drive more enjoyment out of the process of making music than you did previously no no and i can't that's not that's not to uh that's not anything to do with growing more mindful you're never gonna enjoy it more than when you're when yeah. you were doing it when you were 16 you know what i'm saying i didn't in, there was not a moment in the whole career of Titus Andronicus that I enjoyed as much as playing at the high school talent show or something like that. That's one of the problems with doing something for a long time, getting better at it, and being able to see these small mistakes and things is you don't really get that raw energy that you had early on that, you know, you, you get tripped up by those mistakes. You get tripped up by the things that are wrong and you're not able to just channel whatever it is that you were able to channel before. So that's just as true of falling in love, sleigh ride. So at this point, what is the the most purely enjoyable part of the music making process for you the look of validation in my audience members eyes when i when i when i articulate 
the deep secret that they're not getting otherwise supported about. So playing live. Yeah, I suppose so. Well, I mean, the you know, sometimes the playing of it, but you know, the the speaking, meeting the people, hearing their testimonials, that's the part where I really feel like I'm really on the right path. And that really makes me feel good. And you're still able to derive that same sense of pleasure out of it that you were before even all these years later? That yeah, that's still well, as as I grow in a, in intimacy with my audience, and as I reveal more things to them, and uh, as I grow more personal in my uh, subject matter, you know, their testimonials just become all more and more moving. So that's that's the part that I really love. That's the other element of success. There you have it. That was Patrick Stickles of Titus Andronicus recorded that one on Valentine's Day, which is probably part of the reason why there was a bit of lingering melancholy in the room. But enjoy that conversation nonetheless. Thanks to Patrick for taking the time to do that. Titus Andronicus's latest, A Productive Cop, is out now on Merch. Thanks to Mike at Merch for helping set up that conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can like us on Facebook, rate or review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rolcast.tumblr.com. Shoot us an email if you have any feedback. That's rolcast at gmail.com. And that's about it for this week. So stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of R.O.Y.L.